Section 1 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Nagami. A History of Our Own Times from the Accession of Queen Victoria to the General Election of 1880, Volume 1, by Justin McCarthy. Chapter 1. The King is Dead, Long Live the Queen, Part 1. Before half-past two o'clock on the morning of June 20th, 1837, William IV was lying dead in Windsor Castle, while the messengers were already hurrying off to Kensington Palace to bear to his successor her summons to the throne. The illness of the king had been but short, and at one time, even after it had been pronounced alarming, it seemed to take so hopeful a turn that the physicians began to think it would pass harmlessly away. But the king was an old man, was an old man even when he came to the throne, and when the dangerous symptoms again exhibited themselves, their warning was very soon followed by fulfillment. The death of King William may be fairly regarded as having closed an era of our history. With him, we may believe, ended the reign of personal government in England. William was indeed a constitutional king in more than mere name. He was, to the best of his lights, a faithful representative of the constitutional principle. He was as far in advance of his two predecessors in understanding and acceptance of the principle as his successor has proved herself beyond him. Constitutional government has developed itself gradually, as everything else has done in English politics. The written principle and code of its system it would be as vain to look for as for the British Constitution itself. King William still held to and exercised the right to dismiss his ministers when he pleased, and because he pleased. His father had held to the right of maintaining favourite ministers in defiance of repeated votes of the House of Commons. It would not be easy to find any written rule or declaration of constitutional law pronouncing decisively that either was in the wrong. But in our day, we should believe that the constitutional freedom of England was outraged, or at least put in the extremest danger, if a sovereign were to dismiss a ministry at mere pleasure, or to retain it in despite of the expressed wish of the House of Commons. Virtually, therefore, there was still personal government in the reign of William the Fourth. With his death, the long chapter of its history came to an end. We find it difficult now to believe that it was a living principle, openly at work among us, if not openly acknowledged, so lately as in the reign of King William. The closing scenes of King William's life were undoubtedly characterized by some personal dignity. As a rule, sovereigns show that they know how to die. Perhaps the necessary consequence of their training, by virtue of which they come to regard themselves always as the central figures in great state pageantry, is to make them assume a manner of dignity on all occasions when the eyes of their subjects may be supposed to be on them even if the dignity of bearing is not the free gift of nature. The manners of William the Fourth had been, like those of most of his brothers, somewhat rough and overbearing. He had been an unmanageable naval officer. He had again and again disregarded or disobeyed orders, and at last it had been found convenient to withdraw him from active service altogether, 
and allow him to rise through the successive ranks of his profession by a merely formal and technical process of assent in his more private capacity he had when younger indulged more than once in unseemly and insufferable freaks of temper he had made himself unpopular while duke of clarence by his strenuous opposition to some of the measures which were especially desired by all the enlightenment of the country he was for example a determined opponent of the measures for the abolition of the slave trade he had wrangled publicly in open debate with some of his brothers in the house of lords and words had been interchanged among the royal princes which could not be heard in our day even in the hottest debates of the more turbulent house of commons but william seems to have been one of the men whom increased responsibility improves he was far better as a king than as a prince he proved that he was able at least to understand that first duty of a constitutional sovereign which to the last day of his active life his father george the third never could be brought to comprehend that the personal predilections and prejudices of the king must sometimes give way to the public interest nothing perhaps in life became him like to the leaving of it his closing days were marked by gentleness and kindly consideration for the feelings of those around him when he awoke on june eighteenth he remembered that it was the anniversary of the battle of waterloo he expressed a strong pathetic wish to live over that day even if he were never to see another sunset he called for the flag which the duke of wellington always sent him on that anniversary and he laid his hand upon the eagle which adorned it and said he felt revived by the touch he had himself attended since his accession the waterloo banquet but this time the duke of wellington thought it would perhaps be more seemly to have the dinner put off and sent accordingly to take the wishes of his majesty the king declared that the dinner must go on as usual and sent to the duke a friendly simple message expressing his hope that the guests might have a pleasant day he talked in his homely way to those about him his direct language seeming to acquire a sort of tragic dignity from the approach of the death that was so near he had prayers read to him again and again and called those near to him to witness that he had always been a faithful believer in the truths of religion he had his dispatch boxes brought to him and tried to get through some business with his private secretary it was remarked with some interest that the last official act he ever performed was to sign with his trembling hand the pardon of a condemned criminal even a far nobler reign than his would have received new dignity if it closed with a deed of mercy when some of those around him endeavoured to encourage him with the idea that he might recover and live many years yet he declared with a simplicity which had something oddly pathetic in it that he would be willing to live ten years yet for the sake of the country the poor king was evidently under the sincere conviction that england could hardly get on without him his consideration for his country whatever whimsical thoughts it may suggest is entitled to some at least of the respect which we give to the dying groan of a pitt or a mirabeau who fears with too much reason that he leaves a blank not easily to be filled young royal tarry breeks william had been jocularly called by robert burns fifty years before when there was yet a popular belief that he would come all right and do brilliant and gallant things 
and become a stout sailor in whom a seafaring nation might feel pride he disappointed all such expectations but it must be owned that when responsibility came upon him he disappointed expectations anew in a different way and was a better sovereign more deserving of the complimentary title of patriot king than even his friends would have ventured to anticipate there were eulogies pronounced upon him after his death in both houses of parliament as a matter of course it is not necessary however to set down to mere court homage or parliamentary form some of the praises that were bestowed on the dead king by lord melbourne and lord brougham and lord grey a certain tone of sincerity not quite free perhaps from surprise seems to run through some of these expressions of admiration they seem to say that the speakers were at one time or another considerably surprised to find that after all william really was able and willing on grave occasions to subordinate his personal likings and dislikings to considerations of state policy and to what was shown to him to be for the good of the nation in this sense at least he may be called a patriot king we have advanced a good deal since that time and we require somewhat higher and more positive qualities in a sovereign now to excite our political wonder but we must judge william by the reigns that went before and not the reign that came after him and with that consideration borne in mind we may accept the panegyric of lord melbourne and lord grey and admit that on the whole he was better than his education his early opportunities and his early promise william the fourth third son of george the third had left no children who could have succeeded to the throne and the crown passed therefore to the daughter of his brother fourth son of george the duke of kent this was the princess alexandrina victoria who was born at kensington palace on may twenty fourth eighteen nineteen the princess was therefore at this time little more than eighteen years of age the duke of kent died a few months after the birth of his daughter and the child was brought up under the care of his widow she was well brought up both as regards her intellect and her character her training was excellent she was taught to be self-reliant brave and systematical prudence and economy were inculcated on her as though she had been born to be poor one is not generally inclined to attach much importance to what historians tell us of the education of contemporary princes or princesses but it cannot be doubted that the princess victoria was trained for intelligence and goodness the death of the king of england has everywhere caused the greatest sensation cousin victoria is said to have shown astonishing self-possession she undertakes a heavy responsibility especially at the present moment when parties are so excited and all rest their hopes on her these words are an extract from a letter written on july fourth eighteen thirty seven by the late prince albert the prince consort of so many happy years the letter was written to the prince's father from bunn the young queen had indeed behaved with remarkable self-possession there is a pretty description which has been often quoted but which will bear citing once more given by miss wynne of the manner in which the young sovereign received the news of her accession to the throne the archbishop of canterbury dr howley and the lord chamberlain the marquis of conningham left windsor for kensington palace where the princess victoria had been residing to inform her of the king's death it was two hours after midnight when they started and they did not reach kensington until five o'clock in the morning they knocked they rang 
they thumped for a considerable time before they could rouse the porter at the gate they were again kept waiting in the courtyard then turned into one of the lower rooms where they seemed forgotten by everybody they rang the bell and desired that the attendant of the princess victoria might be sent to inform her royal highness that they requested an audience on business of importance after another delay and another ringing to inquire the cause the attendant was summoned who stated that the princess was in such a sweet sleep that she could not venture to disturb her then they said we are come on business of state to the queen and even her sleep must give way to that it did and to prove that she did not keep them waiting in a few minutes she came into the room in a loose white nightgown and shawl her nightcap thrown off and her hair falling upon her shoulders her feet in slippers tears in her eyes but perfectly collected and dignified the prime minister lord melbourne was presently sent for and a meeting of the privy council summoned for eleven o'clock when the lord chancellor administered the usual oaths to the queen and her majesty received in return the oaths of allegiance of the cabinet ministers and other privy councillors present mr greville who was usually as little disposed to record any enthusiastic admiration of royalty and royal personages as humboldt or van hagen van enza could have been has described the scene in words well worthy of quotation the king died at twenty minutes after two yesterday morning and the young queen met the consul at kensington palace at eleven never was anything like the first impression she produced or the chorus of praise and admiration which is raised about her manner and behaviour and certainly not without justice it was very extraordinary and something far beyond what was looked for her extreme youth and inexperience and the ignorance of the world concerning her naturally excited intense curiosity to see how she would act on this trying occasion and there was a considerable assemblage at the palace notwithstanding the short notice which was given the first thing to be done was to teach her her lesson which for this purpose melbourne had himself to learn she bowed to the lords took her seat and then read her speech in a clear distinct and audible voice and without any appearance of fear or embarrassment she was quite plainly dressed and in mourning after she had read her speech and taken and signed the oath for the security of the church of scotland the privy councillors were sworn the two royal dukes first by themselves and as these two old men her uncles knelt before her swearing allegiance and kissing her hand i saw her blush up to the eyes as if she felt the contrast between their civil and their natural relations and this was the only sign of emotion which she evinced her manner to them was very graceful and engaging she kissed them both and rose from her chair and moved towards the duke of sussex who was farthest from her and too infirm to reach her she seemed rather bewildered at the multitude of men who were sworn and who came one after another to kiss her hand but she did not speak to anybody nor did she make the slightest difference in her manner or show any in her countenance to any individual of any rank station or party i particularly watched her when melbourne and the ministers and the duke of wellington and peel approached her she went through the whole ceremony occasionally looking at melbourne for instruction when she had any doubt what to do which hardly ever occurred and with perfect calmness and self-possession but at the same time with a graceful modesty and propriety particularly interesting and ingratiating 
sir robert peel told mr greville that he was amazed at her manner and behaviour at her apparent deep sense of her situation and at the same time her firmness the duke of wellington said in his blunt way that if she had been his own daughter he could not have desired to see her perform her part better at twelve says mr greville she held a council at which she presided with as much ease as if she had been doing nothing else all her life and though lord lansdowne and my colleague had contrived between them to make some confusion with the council papers she was not put out by it she looked very well and though so small in stature and without much pretension to beauty the gracefulness of her manner and the good expression of her countenance give her on the whole a very agreeable appearance and with her youth inspire an excessive interest in all who approach her and which i can't help feeling myself in short she appears to act with every sort of good taste and good feeling as well as good sense and as far as it has gone nothing can be more favourable than the impression that she has made and nothing can promise better than her manner and conduct do though mr greville somewhat superfluously adds it would be rash to count too confidently upon her judgment and discretion in more weighty matters the interest or curiosity with which the demeanour of the young queen was watched was all the keener because the world in general knew so little about her not merely was the world in general thus ignorant but even the statesmen and officials in closest communication with court circles were in almost absolute ignorance according to mr greville whose authority however is not to be taken too implicitly except as to matters which he actually saw the young queen had been privately kept in such seclusion by her mother never he says having slept out of her bedroom nor been alone with anybody but herself and the baroness Leitzen, that not one of her acquaintance none of the attendants at kensington not even the duchess of northumberland her governess have any idea what she is or what she promises to be there was enough in the court of the two sovereigns who went before queen victoria to justify any strictness of seclusion which the duchess of kent might desire for her daughter george the fourth was a charles the second without the education or talents william the fourth was a frederick william of prussia without the genius the ordinary manners of the society at the court of either had a full flavour to put it in the softest way such as a decent tap-room would hardly exhibit in a time like the present no one can read even the most favourable descriptions given by contemporaries of the manners of those two courts without feeling grateful to the duchess of kent for resolving that her daughter should see as little as possible of their ways and their company it was remarked with some interest that the queen subscribed herself simply victoria and not as had been expected alexandrina victoria mr greville mentions in his diary of december twenty fourth eighteen nineteen that the duke of kent gave the name of alexandrina to his daughter in compliments to the emperor of russia she was to have had the name of georgiana but the duke insisted upon alexandrina being her first name the regent sent for liefen the russian ambassador husband of the famous princess de liefen and made him a great many compliments on le persiflon on the emperor's being godfather but informed him that the name of georgiana could be second to no other in this country and therefore she could not bear it at all it was a very wise choice to employ simply the name of victoria around which no ungenial associations of any kind hung at that time 
and which can have only grateful associations in the history of this country for the future. End of section 1